Amen. Well, if you have the book of Daniel, either on a device or a Bible, if you could open up to it. This is one of those chapters you do want to see, you do want to read. If you're able to stand, I want to invite you to stand with me. I'm going to read the first 12 verses of Daniel chapter 8. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal. And the horns were long. One of the horns were longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged toward the west and the north, and the south. No animal could stand against it, and no, and no one, none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came toward the two-horned ram I had been standing beside, the canal and charged at it in a great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as a commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Well, you may grab a seat. What a powerful, powerful word. As we read things like this, we recognize that Daniel has a lot of apocalyptic literature in it, right? Apocalyptic literature is a little bit different. It's a kind of a subcategory of prophetic. In the prophetic, right, you're, you're looking often, not always, it's sometimes just God saying this truth out there, but sometimes it's predicting things, it's saying it. Well, apocalyptic literature comes in and it uses imagery and it usually uses imagery and builds on top of it. So you start getting weird pictures because it's stacking image upon image upon image. And all of a sudden, we get this idea coming from each of these images. And so that's what we see here, right? You begin to see a ram. There's really three big players here. There's the ram, there's the the goat, the shaggy goat, and then there's this this horn, this little horn. Those are the three main players, and all of them take on significance in this literature. Well, this morning as we look at 
Daniel chapter 8, I want to just bring it into three main points. And here are the three main points. God sees, God knows, and God acts. These become really, really important. So the first one is this, God sees, right? God sees. That's the first thing we need to take away from Daniel chapter 8 right? There's this prophetic part. There's this apocalyptic part. God sees the future. And we see this right from the beginning, the vision. Daniel says in verse 2, he says, I saw myself. And then he says, I looked up, right? All of this is going on as he gets this vision. I watched and I saw in verse 7. Now, let's get the timing of this. Remember why, remember why they are in Babylon. They had rebelled against God. They were being disciplined for their spirit of rebellion, for their resistance against God, their disobedience to the word. And so God said, okay, I'm going to discipline you. You're going to Babylon for 70 years. We are now about 55 years into the 70 years. Now you need to pay attention to that because that becomes significant as we try to understand what's going on in Daniel chapter 8. So remember we we see that it's Belshazzar, right? It's the third year, verse 1 of King Belshazzar. and, And God sees all this. And we know that he was based on what we've been studying, and Pastor Brad did a great job bringing us into the last two chapters. Oh, by the way, let me just say, when, when we put out our preaching schedule, it is put out like a couple months ahead of time. And so I had no idea that I'd be in the hospital so much these last couple of weeks, but God did a couple months ago and had set this all up so that Brad was already scheduled to preach. I mean, what a gift. It wasn't like a pivot at the last minute. This is God at work uh, knowing everything because he sees the future. He sees what's going on here. But what we begin to see is you got Nebuchadnezzar. And remember Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, of the Babylonians, people saw some of the change going on in him, and at times he would express worship to God. Then we get to Belshazzar, and he's worse. He actually is not so cozied up to David. Well, guess what's going to happen? It's going to get worse. As the 70 years is going on, this continues to get worse. So we got Belshazzar. He's an arrogant, blasphemous God. But as we just started to read about this new vision... We're seeing that it is going to get terrible. I mean, incredibly terrible. And so we see all this taking place at the citadel of Susa. So what God is giving Daniel is this vision of a place about 220 miles away from Babylon. So it's going to expand because we already know that new empires are going to come onto the world scene. These are going to be world-class empires. And so while the Babylonians begin to fade, the Medes are going to increase, then the Persians, and so you get this Medo-Persian group that combine, and then we're going to get the Greeks and then the Romans, right? And each one is going on, but God is revealing the future. Now, I wasn't going to say too much about this, but I feel like I need to say something this morning. We are in a culture where there's more and more resistance to the Bible and the prophetic word. Now, I'm not going to throw mud at any of my evangelical brothers or sisters. That's not for me to do. 
What it is for me to do is say there's a growing swath of people, even in evangelicalism, that deny that Daniel was written in the 6th century B.C., that it was actually written in the 2nd century B.C. during the Maccabean period. Now, I want to bring this out because I at least want you to know why I believe that it's a 6th century B.C. document and not a 2nd century B.C. document. First of all, let's just look at it a little bit historically. It wasn't until about the 300s, the uh, late 200 A.D., the 3rd century A.D., that a skeptic came out and said, wait a minute, Daniel wasn't written until the 2nd century. So for the first couple hundred years of the church, while we're combining everything and compiling the canon, the, the New Testament, Everyone agreed this is a 6th century B.C. document. Well, then, that just kind of got dismissed from 300 A.D. all the way to about 1500, 1600 A.D. with the Enlightenment. So really, it sat dormant as a theory, and everybody held on to the idea that it was a 6th century document. Well, what happens in the Enlightenment? We start elevating ourselves. We start deciding that reason can transcend everything. And all of a sudden, God starts getting pushed to the fringes. Now, I'm doing a real brief historical thing here. But what happens is that since the Enlightenment, we start seeing greater criticism of the Bible. So for the last couple hundred years, and what's happened is that has kind of scared got into evangelicalism. It, it kind of snuck in. And so now there's more evangelicals saying, yeah, it's a second century document. Now, second century BC document. Now what's happening here is they're discovering that there's documents written that look like they're prophetic, but really aren't. And so they're saying that God used this genre, this form of writing, where someone looks like they're writing prophetic works, but they're not. Let me give an example. So let's say I'm going to write something about the founding of our country. I'm going to take on the personhood of George Washington, and I'm going to pretend I'm writing from George Washington's standpoint. Now, I know about the Battle of Lexington. I know about the Battle of Concord. I know how the Revolutionary War plays out, right? I could write all that down and make it look like it was prophetic. Well, we find these ancient documents where that is happening. And so evangelicals are saying, well, because we hold to a historical, literal, in a hermeneutic or a way to interpret the Bible, People are holding on to these kind of documents and say, see, we see it in history. We see it in the ancient Near East. God's not opposed to using any of these genres, any of these forms of writing. God uses narrative. The world uses narrative. God, the world uses poetry. God uses poetry. The world uses wisdom literature. God uses wisdom literature, right? So it's the form of literature. I have no problem with that part of the issue. My problem is that I, as a believer, see that God is doing something to show us, the people then and the people today, right now, that he is not like 
any other God. He sees the future. And what these people needed, just like you and I need, is that God sees the future. He knows the future, and he's acting to control where he wants things to go. So it's not about genre. It's not about the historical, literal hermeneutic. It's about God revealing himself as someone that is so different than all the gods of the world that we can put our trust in him. So sometimes, and I'll wrap it up with this, you hear me use the phrase, I don't want to get stuck in modernity. Now that might be an abstract word. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? I'm talking about essentially the time from the enlightenment moving forward that we think we can control all these things. It's the modern age. It's the way we do things. It's the scientific age. No problem with that. I rejoice in the scientific developments. I experienced those with my wife the last couple of weeks, the scientific developments. The problem is that can't control everything. We are moving into, and I prefer to use the term not postmodernism, but late modernity. We're holding on to modernity, but we're pushing beyond that. Now, where am I going with this? I'm just saying the Bible is unique. You can't read it just like a piece of other literature. You need to know it's God-breathed, that God was writing it all through from Genesis to Revelation. It is a unique piece of literature, and we can believe it, and we can trust it. So God sees the future. Well, in this passage, in Daniel chapter 8, God says what this vision means. We don't even have to worry about the hard work. God knows. So that's my second point. The angel, Gabriel, Remember the angel Gabriel? He's the one that met Zechariah in the temple. He's the one that met Mary, remember, and announced to her what was going to happen. Well, Gabriel, this angel, this powerful angel, is now telling Daniel the meaning of the dream. So we don't even have to work at trying to understand the dream. So here's the interpretation that we get in chapter 8, verse 20 and 21. It says this, the two-horned ram that you saw represents the king's of Media and Persia. So we saw the ram, right, with the two horns, and one of them is Media, Media, and the other is Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king, right? So we're getting the interpretation. The shaggy goat has one horn, and it's the first king, and we know now that it was Alexander the Great, Right? There's no power. After Medo-Persia, the uh, Greeks came into power. Alexander the Great was a superstar on the world scene, conquering all kinds of people. And that's just what Daniel predicted. Right? That's just what God said was going to happen because he knows the future. He not only sees it, he knows all the details. Well, the interpretation goes a little further in verse 22. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represents four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. Now we know that's exactly what happened with Alexander the Great. He died at a very young age and his kingdom was divided to four different people. And so when Daniel got this vision, he saw what was going to happen with Alexander the Great and that 
four horns would come. Well, now we get to the last bit of it, the little horn, verses 23 to 25. A fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue will arise, right? So this is a little horn. He actually calls the vision a vision of morning and evenings in verse 26. And look what he says. Now, we know who this is. Now, we don't, Daniel didn't say his name, but when we look back in history, we know it's Antiochus IV Epiphanes, someone who says he's going to manifest God. And so let's look at this. It says, he will become very strong, but not by his own power. Now, if I'm just reading that, and I'm reading it only from a historical literal, I'm not going to apply how I'm interpreting it, I'm going to read that and say, wait a minute, it looks like someone helped him get this power. And it's probably just another person. And we could point to people of how he got his power. And Tychus IV, by the way, was the Seleucid king who was in the second century BC who uh, did these terrible things that we'll see now in these next couple of phrases. He will cause astounding devastation and exceed and succeed at whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. Of course, those are God's people. He's going to destroy them. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. He'll be filled with pride. He will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. That's God. He's going to defy God. He's going to stand up against him. And then you know what? That's exactly what Antiochus IV did. He takes over, he usurps the throne of one of the horns, he starts out small, he becomes more and more powerful, and he seizes the throne, and he became a wicked, wicked tyrant. He banned circumcision, so the Jews practiced circumcision, he banned it, he ended the sacrifices in the temple, he desecrated the temple by sacrificing pigs on the altar, and then... Among that, he started putting the statue of Zeus into the temple itself as well. He burned the scriptures and he slaughtered thousands of God's people, just like Daniel said was going to happen. So Daniel was writing in the 6th century BC, this all happened in the 2nd century BC. It didn't get written after the fact, it got written before. Why did God want this? So that you and I would have confidence that what he says about your future and my future will happen. You can have confidence because our God, he sees the future, he knows the future, and then he acts. And that's where we're going to start getting a glimpse of this now because it says in the end of verse 25, he says, Yet he, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, will be destroyed, but not by human power. Now, what it says right there, your text say the same thing, your Bible, doesn't matter whether you're on a device, it doesn't matter whether you're in the book, it says that he would be destroyed. Now, if you do not believe that God is at work in human history, you're going to read that phrase and you're going to recognize how Antiochus died. Antiochus IV died by bleeding out of his bowels. He just died. We can look at it from a human perspective. And sure enough, 
not by human power. He wasn't run through by a sword. But if you have eyes to see, God says, enough. And he's going to remove him. So when I read, not by human power, because this is God breathed, I know that God is at work in human history, and it wouldn't have mattered what happened. God said, your days are numbered. You ever read that in the Psalms, that your days are numbered? The days of your life are written in the book of life. God has determined it. He is the author of your life. He says when it's going to begin, and he says when you're going to leave this earth, right? This is our God that we worship. So the third point, God acts Regardless of how we understand the 2300 days, there's a couple different interpretations about this, the point is really clear, no matter what interpretation you take, is that God is saying, I'm declaring an end to these tyrants' behavior. But now, I think I said something about Gettysburg at the beginning. As we wrap up chapter 8, we find that Daniel, he is worn out, it says in verse 27. It says that he's exhausted and he's appalled. He says that this vision is beyond understanding. In verse 17, it says that Daniel is terrified. Now, It's real easy to read the vision. We get captured with the apocalyptic nature of it. And we should. That's why it's given to us. But I want you to think deeper and meditate longer on what is happening. Now, let's put you there. You're an Israelite now. God says, hey, the Israelites have been disobeying I'm going to bring a wicked, evil group called the Babylonians. Just read Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk is a prophet, and he's saying he can't believe what God's going to do. He's using a people more wicked than the Israelites who have been rebelling against God and says, I'm going to use them to discipline you for 70 years. Now, if you are a child and your parent says you're going into a timeout, the child usually says, for how long? Five minutes, 10 minutes, all day, all week, I don't know. I got disciplined one time for a whole week for stuff I did. Every day after school, you're going to your room. Don't even think about coming out till dinner, right? But when it's over, when the week was over, I was let out. After 70 years, you would think they're going to be let out because they're there because of discipline. But what happened? What happened? Daniel now says, it's gonna get worse. You thought it was bad under the Babylonians. It's gonna get worse. And all of a sudden, what I wanna do is what they do in the NFL. They throw that red flag and say, foul. Something's unfair. Let's do a replay. Let's see what's really going on because they're looking at this and it's so unfair. 
And that's where I want to wrap up with Daniel, chapter 8. Daniel is terrified. It says that he's appalled because it's going to get worse. Life is unfair. That's the problem. The problem is life is unfair. When we read Daniel chapter 7, Pastor Brad did a masterful job, right? He's bringing us in, but he gave us hope with the ancient of days. In chapter 8, you don't get that hope. You're just left hanging that this world is going to spiral down. Now, when is life unfair? Well, when you get the small piece of pie. When everybody else has it going pretty good, and you look at what's going on in your life, you say, wait a minute, and you want to throw the red flag. That's how I am. I mean, like, why, why does people have all this good stuff going on? And, and let's put it, like, I know some people that are pretty corrupt, but they're living on easy street. I'm like, God, what are you doing? And then I see people really trying to walk with God and live a righteous life, and they're getting knocked around. I'm like, God, what are you doing? That is so unfair. And God, I got to tell you something. I'm throwing my flag because you're inconsistent on your calls. You do one thing for one person. You healed that person. But this person over here, you, you didn't heal. This is the problem of Daniel chapter 8. Now, when I was a little kid, and I complained, I grew up in a large family, and I complained I didn't get as much cake as one of my siblings. You know what my mom and dad would say to me? What you said to your kids, life is unfair. We've all used that line if we've had kids. But we don't like it said to us. Unfairness. Unfairness. I want to take a moment and talk about unfairness. Because life is unfair, isn't it? We've all experienced different parts of it. How do we live in the midst of so much unfairness? I'm going to tell you how. You need to end up in a strong strategic position. The Union Army defeated the Confederate Army because they were in a strong strategic position. We, if we're going to survive in this world with all the unfairness that is here, we've got to get to high ground. We've got to get to Little Round Top. We've got to get to Cemetery Ridge. How do we do that? The first place we need to go is to see that God sees the future, he knows the future, and he's acting in future history. Past, present, and future, God is at work. This takes 
faith. You have to see, just like they had to see, that God is at work. Your story matters to God. He is weaving it in. And so when we look at this, we've got to accept God's use of pain, suffering, and evil that touches our story in his story. That's a hard thing to take. It would be super hard, impossible, I should say, if we didn't believe that God was going to make everything right at some point. Because he sees the future and he knows the future and acts, we have confidence that he is going to make everything right. So while you and I are experiencing unfairness now, there's coming a day when it will all be gone. So the first thing is it's going to take faith. But wait a minute. We all have faith. How do we get to the faith that accepts unfairness and that God's going to settle it? I think there's only one way. And that's we got to die to ourselves. We got to quit throwing the red flag. We got to quit saying foul. And we got to die to ourselves. The world cannot do that. The world is going to exalt itself, it's going to put itself at the front of the line. But as Christ followers, we cannot exalt Jesus Christ and ourselves at the same time. Our faith will be kindled. It will grow into a conflagration if we continue to die to ourselves. And what does that do? It opens the door for prayer. We're going to get our faith kindled by the word of God, but until we believe, which means we've got to die to ourselves, our faith then gets kindled into prayer where we can talk to God about all this unfairness that we all experience. Now, God knows something about unfairness. When he sent his son to the cross, a totally unfair situation, the one who lived a perfect life never sinned, never compromised God's word, was crucified the epitome of unfairness. God took it all. Every slap of the soldier, every whip that beat down on his head, every thorn that got sunk into his skull. Unfair, unfair. But when he rose from the dead and conquered it all, he defeated unfairness. And one day, all our unfairness will be gone as well. Why? Because he is a holy God. When I say holy, there is none like him. He is an awesome God. He sees the future, he knows the future, and he's bringing everything right where he wants it. And one day, as you know the book of Revelation, he is going to wipe away all pain, all evil, all suffering. And Daniel 8 sets us up 
for where God's taken us next week. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that, God, while we, we, we chafe under this issue of unfairness, that you are at work. You are stirring hearts. You are moving, God. And so we pray that we would walk in the power of your spirit. We would continue to die to ourselves, and we would allow you to be unleashed in our lives, living with power. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.